All right, if you would, go ahead and turn over to, if you have a copy of the Confession, go ahead and turn to uh, chapter number 20. Uh, Paul, could you get the door for me, please? Uh, To chapter number 20, uh, paragraph number 4 in the Confession. Chapter 20, paragraph number 4. You see that this is the final uh, paragraph in this chapter. And uh, we're going to continue with the thoughts of of the gospel and the extent of grace thereof. Notice with me what it says there in paragraph 4. Although the gospel be the only outward means of revealing Christ and saving grace, and is as such abundantly sufficient thereunto, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again, quickened or regenerated, There is moreover necessary an effectual, insuperable work of the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul for the producing in them a new spiritual life without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. So our subject this morning is the sufficiency of the gospel unto salvation. The sufficiency of the gospel unto salvation. Now, of course, we read John chapter number six in in a way of preparing us for this paragraph, and we'll be making some reference back to it, but also looking at some other passages of scripture that also teach us about the sufficiency of the gospel. Now, for most of us here today, as I look around, most of us would agree with that statement, I believe, that the gospel is, of course, sufficient. Uh, The sufficiency of the gospel is that it is the means in which salvation is brought unto the unbeliever. And we notice that in the paragraph, we notice that the confession writers made mention of the gospel being the only outward means of revealing Christ. And not only revealing him, but also this saving grace. And you'll notice they use the words abundantly sufficient. In other words, the gospel is not uh, good up to a certain point and then we add unto the gospel or that it's just barely good enough. No, it's abundantly sufficient. It is more than enough. As a matter of fact, it's the only means in which the lost, those who are outside of Christ, uh, are brought into salvation. You'll notice that they say, yet that men who are dead in trespasses may be born again. Uh, We would all agree that man cannot regenerate himself. Man cannot give life to himself. Dead bones cannot be brought to life apart from a divine work of God's miraculous uh, regenerating, quickening power through the Spirit. And so that's a powerful truth that the confession writers, again, goes right along with John 6, which we read. And then he's, but notice he says, there is moreover necessary and an effectual and superable work of the Spirit. Uh, The gospel does not work outside of the effectual working of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, when the gospel is given, the gospel is taken and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that word, in effect, converting or regenerating, making that person born again. Notice that the confession writers, and even what we read in John chapter number 6, that there is this work of drawing. There is this work. Uh, he said in John six forty four, no man can come. And notice it doesn't say that he may come. It says he cannot come. That means he does not have the ability except 
The exceptions in the Word of God are often wonderful reminders. Except which hath sent me to draw him. This drawing is not just this invitation. It is literally the powerful, effective, efficient pull. That's what the draw is. I will draw him. And then he says, I will raise him at the last day. So we see that no man has the ability to come unto God apart from this drawing and apart from the work of the Spirit. So the confession writers were driving home the point of the sufficiency of the gospel. Of course, the true gospel does not leave out the working of the Holy Spirit. And therein lies the difference we're going to talk a little bit about today, that there are those who would take the position that the gospel is given and then the results are left to man. No, we see the true gospel not only proclaims the gospel, but that saving faith, saving grace comes as the gospel is applied and the Holy Spirit of God does the work of regeneration. That's really what the intent of this final paragraph of chapter 20 is. Notice he says the Holy Spirit upon the whole soul. I love the, I love the fact that they use the word whole. They didn't leave any room to say 99% of the soul, 99.9% of the soul. No, they said it's the Holy Spirit that does an effectual work on the whole soul. And again, aren't we glad for that? Aren't we glad that God did an entire work in our entire soul and he didn't leave anything up to us because if we were left with even just a half of a percent chance, we would not come to him. And yet that's the beauty of this effectual drawing that John 6 talks about. Notice that it says that not only is this effectual upon the whole soul, it produces new spiritual life. It doesn't produce just a better version of you. It produces new spiritual life without which no other means will affect their conversion unto God. They were very dogmatic about what they believed salvation was and what the gospel is. And so part of today, as we learn through this paragraph and look at the scriptures, is to have this same confidence uh, that these confession writers did in the word of God. So in this final paragraph, we see as our subject this sufficiency of the gospel. Uh, There's only one gospel, and aren't we glad that that's enough? Um, Some people would say, well, for God to really be effective, he needs to make one or two or three or maybe five different gospels to to deal with different types of personalities. No, he simply says there's one gospel and we're grateful to know this morning that one gospel is enough. It is the gospel that is abundantly sufficient unto salvation. Uh, We should be confident Uh, not just sort of confident, but abundantly confident in the sufficiency of the gospel unto salvation. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote in Romans 1.16, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul did not write in a sense of saying, well, I'm, I'm sort of confident that it, the power of God unto salvation might work. No, he says it is the power of God to everyone that believes. If you're a believer today, it is attributed to the power of God. And that's what's at the heart of this. Because Paul's confidence in the gospel, he says that he was eager 
to preach the gospel. You don't find Paul being a little bit standoffish saying, you know, I'm not really sure this gospel is for these people. I'm not sure that this meeting of the church at whatever he was, I'm not sure the gospel is going to be enough. And you don't see Paul inventing new ways. You don't see Paul trying to improve on this one gospel. He remains confident that it's the power of God unto salvation that saves. So he was eager, and when he says in Romans 1, 15 and 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, it's one thing to claim that as your verse. I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel. But do you know that Paul meant even something a little bit more than just not being ashamed to tell people? He was not ashamed to say that I am fully confident that the gospel will do what God intends for it to do. He's confident. Paul was confident that the gospel of Christ, he had every confidence that if he proclaimed and preached it clearly, it would do the very work in which he had, God had purposed to send it. So there's really two assertions that this paragraph makes regarding this sufficiency. Number one, we see that it is only the, the only means of revealing Christ is the gospel. So in effect, it is abundantly sufficient. But they also assert the reality of the converting power. The power, the word, the gospel, is of no effect unless it is accompanied by the regenerating power of the Spirit. Now, that's why people say when they preach the gospel and they see no results. What do they say? They say there's something wrong with the gospel. The gospel has no problems. The gospel message doesn't need to be changed. But just because the gospel is preached doesn't mean that every soul that hears it is regenerate. It must be accompanied by the Holy Spirit's regenerating power. That's why we give all glory to God for our salvation is because we know that it was the Spirit that regenerated us. It was not us breathing life into ourselves. So in the conversion of the sinner, the Holy Spirit is absolutely not just vital, it's necessary. Without the Spirit, there is no conversion of the soul. How does the Spirit work? The Spirit works in and through the gospel. For the darkened and depraved soul to be enlightened, there must be a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not work outside the boundaries of the gospel. And I think that's an important principle and a concept we should get today. There's a lot of people saying, well, the Holy Spirit can use any means or anything he wants to do. No, he cannot. It is through the gospel that the Holy Spirit regenerates. That's why we have a lot of people, and I'll say a little bit more about this, who think I can just give some kind of a feel-good message and the Holy Spirit is going to honor my feel-good message. You are, you are sorely mistaken. The Spirit of God works through the truth of the gospel. So we know that there is deep theology in this chapter we've been studying. We saw in paragraph one, the setting of the revelation of the gospel. Why did the gospel come? Because Adam sinned. Uh, secondly, we saw the salvation of the gospel and its necessity in paragraph two. Last week, we considered the sovereign determination in the spraying of the gospel. In other words, God determines where it goes, who receives it. And so that we should not be troubled uh, when we think, well, somebody over there didn't hear. Uh, God is sovereignly in control of where the gospel goes and to whom the gospel becomes effectual. So we need to have the same confidence 
Uh, in this generation, we are seeing more and more gimmicks. We're seeing more and more things to try to attract men to come to church, trying to attract people to come. Again, I don't mean to be ugly this morning, but you should not have to attract people to come to church by offering them a free gift. You should not have put out on your sign today, you know, I'm just going to use what's out there. It's Father's Day. Father's come. We have a gift for you. Uh, you should not have to attract with gimmicks. You should not have to say, here's what we do, and we're going to make this about you. It's not about you. I am privileged to be a father, but this day, this Lord's Day, is not about me. It's about the Lord. Paul never used a gimmick. He never used some kind of a prize giveaway. In a day and age in which churches are even holding raffles, how foolish and how silly. You're using gimmicks because you don't have confidence in the gospel. Or you're not even preaching the gospel, which is most likely the truth. You're not using the gospel properly. You're not preaching it. So we're trying to win people. We're trying to win people to our congregations. We're trying to win people to our view of church. We've entertained people, pardon the expression, we've entertained them to death. We're running out of ways to entertain people. And that's why you see the silliness of, I told you a couple weeks ago about churches using Marvel superheroes and reenacting the crucifixion with Marvel superheroes. Friends, that's not just silly, that's blasphemous. This, this is not a God who's meant to be trifled with. This is not a God that we're supposed to just simply say, you know, God doesn't care what I use as long as I attract people. Oh, yes, he does. And God does not bless that. So we've entertained ourselves to death that now we're running out of ideas. And that's what happens when you turn the gospel into a gimmick. You think, I just, gotta, I just have to have a better band. I've got to have a better environment. I've got to have a better light show. I've got to have better smoke. I've got to have more talented performers. I've got to have this. And those people are just dead to the reality and they have no confidence in the gospel at all. Men are dead in their sins and trespasses and they cannot hear apart from the Holy Spirit's enlightening work. Paul had confidence in the gospel, and he just simply preached it. He believed the gospel alone was abundantly sufficient. Now, that's the position that I hope not just our church takes in its bylaws and confession, but I hope that's your personal conviction today, that the, the gospel is where our confidence is in. So the sufficiency of the gospel unto salvation by the confession writers was carefully stated. Notice they were very careful in how they worded things. Uh, one thing that's very important, I think, even in our day and age, is to choose our words carefully. Choose what we say. Think about when you're talking the gospel to someone, carefully consider what you're saying. Now, we are so quick just to ramble out the first thing that comes to our mind, and sometimes we don't give the gospel we give bits of it, we give parts of it, but then we confuse it. Now, thankfully, the Holy Spirit's not hindered by our insufficiency. But the paragraph, chapter 20, closed with this paragraph, and it balances a truth that's really important for us to consider today. It is in addition to the Word of God, and it's not removed from it, 
there must be an effectual, powerful work of the Spirit on the whole soul to produce eternal life. Your heart doesn't receive the gospel until the Holy Spirit of God has done a regenerating work in your heart. That's why to begin a gospel presentation by saying, ask Jesus into your heart, you're asking man to do something he's incapable of doing. Even if your gospel presentation has been spot on, and you ask them, now bow your head and ask Jesus into your heart, you're asking them to do that apart from the work of the Spirit, they can't do. Now, does the Spirit open the heart? Yes. Does man open the heart? No. John 6 clearly says it's not man opening his own heart. It's not man giving life to his own dead bones. It's God. I love what we read last week in Acts 16, verse 14 about Lydia. Remember that passage says, whose heart the Lord opened. Lydia didn't open her own heart. She didn't prime the proverbial pump and get ready to receive it. No, God opened her heart. That destroys all carnal confidence when we know that God is the one that opens the heart. You should have no confidence in your own ability today. You should not falsely put confidence in the sinner that if you just do this, that's sufficient to save you. Do you see the danger of this? Do you see how dangerous this can be to even give a slight hint that what a person is doing is opening their own heart? There's no confidence in us. I love the fact we've heard this theme a couple times over the last few weeks. Have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Because the flesh will always lead you astray. Now, what does that mean? If the Lord opens the heart, that means all carnal confidence is gone, including the preaching ability of the preacher or the evangelist. A preacher and evangelist has never converted a single soul. All the evangelist and the preacher is called to do is preach the truth, preach the gospel, not get results. And not grow discouraged if he doesn't get results. That's what the confession writers really wanted us to know. The gospel is sufficient. The spirit must move or no new spiritual life will be done to the souls of men. That should drive us to our very knees and every time the gospel is given. Instead of praying for God to give you the ability to speak more clearly... Maybe you should pray, God, give me more confidence in the gospel alone, not in my flesh. People keep asking the question, how can I more effectively give the gospel? Friends, I'm just going to say this as as kindly as I can. You don't need to go to an evangelism conference to know how to give the gospel, but you need to know what the gospel is. It's not about your effective ability to speak. It's about the converting power of the Spirit using what the gospel is. Where do we find the gospel in this book? That means you've got to talk to people about John 6, and say, no man can come except the Father. You say, well, that's going, to, that's going to burn any evangelism and any possibility of saving them. Then you have no confidence in the gospel. You're relying upon your ability to speak. Now, the Confession of Faith didn't just do this for no reason. 
The Confession of Faith, remember this is dated 1689. This was not the first uh, edition of the Baptist Confession of Faith. It was actually 1644. There's actually the first London Baptist Confession of Faith, and this is the second. And we know that these are, these, both of these came as a result of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but there was a specific purpose why they were doing this. Especially this chapter was meant to show us a balance between the truth to avoid and guard against extremes. The two extremes they're guarding against are Arminianism and hyper-Calvinism. Those are both extreme views. An Arminian is an extreme view this way. A hyper-Calvinist is an extreme view this way. Now, the most well-known Arminian and the most quoted and patterned life of a preacher is Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a staunch Arminian. He also did not believe in the sin of original sin. So he's already starting on a false foundation. But yet Charles Finney is held in high regard to, of Arminian churches. Churches who believe salvation is based upon your free will. Charles Finney is their hero. Charles Finney was also known for not only being against some of the doctrines that we would hold so dear, but he was also believed and taught, and it's still being taught and carried out today, that in order to see people saved, you have to create proper conditions. In other words, you've got to have an atmosphere and an environment that is conducive for the Spirit of God to move, to work. Create atmosphere. How do you create atmosphere? It's not just by turning lights down. It's by emotionally creating an atmosphere. That's what he believed. And he believed that if you create the right atmosphere, the results of conversion are assured. That's false. That's false. It is not about the atmosphere. It's not about the speaker. It's not about the building you're in. It's not about the, the soft sound of just as I am playing in the background a hundred times until someone responds. That's atmosphere, folks. I still get people ask me the question, why do you not give an invitation? Why do you not give an altar call? Because we do not want to in any way, shape, or form give the idea that what's happening there is your conversion. Because when the Spirit of God moves, you don't have to invite people. They will tell you, Christ Jesus has saved my soul. It's emotional manipulation. That's why we don't do it. I have very rarely ever seen an altar call done right. You can give an invitation, but you're going to have a hard time giving an invitation and doing it right. Because the invitation in and of itself suggests this is up to me. And yet the gospel's not an invitation. It's command. He doesn't say, look, consider repentance and believe the gospel. No, repent and believe the gospel. Finney believed that it was just the right environment. It's being used by many churches today. The proper use of, basically the proper use of proper means brings certain results. Most revival meetings that you and I hear about today are programmed. They're programmed from the very songs that they sing to the very sermon that is preached to manipulate psychologically. 
What are you trying to drive you to? To make a decision. Make a decision. Make a choice now. Look, we're supposed to preach the gospel. You are supposed to talk to people in your workplaces. You're supposed to talk to your family. And that might even include going and knocking on someone's door. Okay, I'm not saying that those things are wrong. But I'm telling you, you got to be careful about how you present it. And if you in any way, shape, or form give them the idea that before I leave your doorstep, you need to make a decision. You've already given them a faulty gospel. See, our, our humanity, our flesh wants results. I don't know any true preacher of God that doesn't want to see results every, every Lord's Day. I pray every Lord's Day in my own private prayer that God would save a soul today. That God would save a church member. That's my specific prayer. God would save a church member. Because you can be on a membership role and not be saved. It happens more often than you ever want to know. And that's why people say, why do you preach the gospel every service? For that exact reason. Not just for the visitor. For the person who's been sitting here, who's been relying on themselves. You see, most revival meetings and evangelistic crusades are programmed. You cannot guarantee results. The very name revival meeting is presuming that revival's coming. How can I call a meeting a revival meeting if God didn't send it? How can I call revival revival if revival's not happening? If you get to the end of the seven days and nobody's revived, what failed? I thought God sent revival. You see, it sends the wrong message. John 3.8 says, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh from, and whether it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You can't tell where it's, coming from, where it's coming from, and you can't tell when it's coming. But I'm telling you, when it comes, what a glorious day it is when someone says, Jesus Christ has saved my soul. And they were not emotionally manipulated or forced to give a decision to sign a card. Man produced conversions. They may say there were results. But we do see an appalling number of statistics of what we call backsliding of people who went forward in these meetings. We say they're backsliding, but in reality, 2 Peter 2, verse 20 and 22 says it, and I don't mean to be crude this morning, it said that they're not backslidden, they're just returning to the vomit from which they originally came from. See, we don't like that. We don't like to think that that might have been an emotionally, psychological produced conversion that was not real at all. So it calms and it, it, it speaks to our minds and our flesh is more... We're more comfortable saying, look, my loved one is just backslidden as if that's a good condition. But sometimes it's not backslidden. It's unconverted. Folks, that's why I am so extremely careful with what our kids hear. Now you ultimately as parents, it's your responsibility to make sure your kids know the true gospel. But I am not going to do anything to try to manipulate your children into believing and getting them to even believe a false conversion. That's why we're not trying to make this so that the kids can fully understand everything we talk about. Because when the Spirit does it, it's discernment. Most kids' ministries are utter failures. 
And I'm not trying to be ugly, but that's what happens. We say you got to bring it down to their level. The Spirit of God does not need to be brought down to their level. If God has elected and chosen to save them, I can stand here with a certainty and tell you that one day they are going to be enlightened to the gospel. Now again, your flesh would rather say, well, I'd rather know now. How are you going to be sure that you know? What are you going to base their salvation upon? Again, we're not looking for man-produced conversions. The confession guards against Arminianism, but it also guards against hyper-Calvinism. Now, some of you, these are new terms. Again, I don't make an assumption here. Um, Hyper-Calvinism is simply those who teach that men are saved by sovereign spirit regeneration alone, which basically means the spirit regenerates and gives life apart from the hearing of the word of the gospel. In other words, it takes man's responsibility to preach the gospel completely out of man's hands. The problem is that's totally contrary to Scripture. We are commanded to preach the gospel. God would not command us to do that which is of no value at all. You go into a hyper-Calvinist church and you will find that the gospel preaching is almost non-existent. The scriptures declare that the word is necessary to the new birth. Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel was preached unto you. You see, the gospel preached is the means in which God has declared to be used. James 1.18 says of his own of his own begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It is by the word of truth we were born again. Is it of a sovereign God? Yes. But what are the means that are used to call the elect to himself? The gospel. Not a poem, not a feel-good article, not an emotional inspiring story, the gospel. It's the word of truth the very instrument of the gospel. The Bible is filled with passages that we could look at this morning, and I would encourage you to do that. Look at the sufficiency of the gospel uh, throughout Scripture. Uh, one of those events we just looked at and talked about Lydia. Well, later on in that chapter, in Acts chapter number 16, the more familiar story is the event of, of Paul and Silas, uh, right, being uh, placed in prison. And that's Acts chapter 16. Um, and you'll notice that the Bible tells that when they, at midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. The keeper of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
Notice Paul doesn't say, I need you to repeat after me. I need you to do these things. But he says, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all them, all that were in his house. And he took them the same night, same hour of the night, washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he sat meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. God uses the means of the gospel. Secondly, the sufficiency of the gospel unto salvation is the means of calling sinners. Now these will go rather quickly, but the preaching of the gospel is completely sufficient. Sufficient to reveal Christ, sufficient to reveal sin, and to reveal the way of salvation. The preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, Paul said. We looked at Romans 1. What is man's problem? The problem is man is sinful. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that man, the natural man is not able to receive and accept the good news. He can't discern it. Why? Because the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 4.4, that he's blind. And because he's dead in his trespasses and sins, there must be a work of the Spirit. There must be a work of God. So the Holy Spirit does a mighty work of regeneration to respond to the gospel. Folks, the very fact you responded to the gospel was because the Holy Spirit did an amazing work in your heart, a regenerating work. That's why we say regeneration precedes faith. Arminians say the other way around. Faith precedes regeneration. It's a huge difference. So the preaching of the gospel is the outward means of revealing Christ to sinners. The Holy Spirit's work is always through the preached gospel. It's never in isolation from the gospel. The Holy Spirit's work is preached. It's verified. It's confirmed. Back in chapter 10 of our confession, paragraph 1, teaches us that the preaching of the gospel can be seen by the outward call and the regenerating work of the Spirit is the inward call. However, it's the inward call of the Spirit never happens in isolation. Salvation never happens without the preached word. Again, that's why man is trying every gimmick in the world. Let's try to have the right environment. Let's bring in the right speaker. It's amazing how many times I hear, we just, if we could just get that guy here, I know God would do a mighty work in this place. The most powerful preacher who would be invited to speak behind this pulpit is not bringing any more power than any man who stands behind this pulpit. That man is not bringing anything more. They said, well, he preaches with such eloquence. He preaches with such passion. He, he preaches with such understanding. God has never used, never needed, rather, the abilities and the skill of man to convert the soul. Imagine being a faithful pastor or preacher somewhere, being told, you know, preacher, what we really need is you really need that one guy that pastors the church down the road because they got a thousand people in there. We really need to get this guy that I'm seeing on YouTube all the time. If we really could have that man in here. And again, I'm not, I am not doubting their salvation. I'm not doubting God's using them. But if you think it's the man that can go anywhere and he'll get the same results, you're trusting in the flesh. 
We don't know why God works in some places. And by the way, just because it appears like something is happening doesn't mean people are being saved at the rates that you think they are. Our churches right now in this nation, solid preaching gospel churches, attendance-wise, are at an all-time low. Now again, take those stats with a grain of salt. If the gospel is being accepted and received, then why are our churches not full? And why is there so much of a falling away? I praise God it didn't happen to us. And I know I hate to bring up this subject again, but I'm telling you, COVID alone destroyed some churches. People didn't come back. And that's all it took? And you tell me you're a child of God, you quit the faith because of the way your church handled COVID? And I just won't go to church because of the way they handled that. And you tell me you're a child of God. COVID, with what it did to the churches, it purged. I praise God that through COVID, we did not lose many people. And yet, we didn't do anything different. We didn't try to make it more gimmicky, more hospitable. We just simply did and continued to preach the gospel. That's what we need to have that confidence that Paul had. So the third heading here is the sufficiency of the gospel and the salvation does not remove the commission to the church to preach the gospel. There's always a danger. Again, we talked about extremes of Arminian and hyper-Calvinist. Remember, there's also a danger that because we believe in the sovereignty of God, that we have no responsibility. The confession of faith goes right along with the Scripture's command that it states the necessity of the gospel for the salvation of sinful man and the sovereignty of God and his dissemination of where it goes. There's an emphasis placed on the mandate given to the church to preach the gospel to the world. Folks, this is a, a simple point, and we'll bring this to a close. The church in general, and us specifically for this time, cannot hide behind the sovereignty of God as an excuse to be lazy in preaching the gospel. You can misappropriate and misuse sovereignty and use it as an excuse to hide. Well, God is sovereign. We'll just kind of sit back and do whatever we need to do. You can't hide behind God's sovereignty and shirk our responsibilities. We've been given the commission. We've been given the command to go and preach. The confession along with Scripture states the very necessity and the sufficiency of the gospel for the salvation of who? The elect. The Bible nowhere says that the whole world is going to be saved. There is no such thing as universal salvation. There is no such thing as God wants every single person to be saved, but they chose not to. That's not the gospel. We don't know why, we don't know who, we don't know how God is working, but these truths are necessary for us to know. It is vital for us to consider our responsibility to declare God's glory unto the nations through the preaching of the word of God. We ought to have confidence in the authority of the word of God, have confidence in the authority of Christ. Every time we preach the gospel, we are assured of the presence of Christ. We ought to boldly make him known, trusting that the Spirit will work by and through the word to effectually call 
all he has chosen. Before the foundation of the world, he called those to be his. His call will not fail. All that have been called will come unto him. I pray that will encourage us this morning as we think about this. Next week, we are going to move right into chapter 21, dealing with Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Uh, To say that this is going to be an interesting study is an understatement. Um, Probably over the last few years, this has also come to the very forefront of important issues that the church has been dealing with. And also, um, I mentioned to you last week, uh, the dangers of what's referred to today as New Calvinism. Um, which that may be a new principle to you, um, has to do with this area of Christian liberty. What does it mean to have liberty and liberty of conscience? So we'll talk about that next week. So if you'd like to read ahead, uh, chapter 21, um, we're just going to do an introduction to it next week. So I hope that'll be a help to us. Amen.